Well, if you ever see a portrait painted by one of the great Renaissance painters like Botticelli, Donatello, or Rembrandt, you might marvel at the elaborate clothing worn by the fashionable wealthy class depicted in those paintings. Lace, brocade, velvet, high collars, flowing robes abound. All that fashionable clothing and ornate fabric was created, of course, by hand. No sewing machines existed in the 14th century. Sophie Pittman is a textile specialist and research director for the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin School of Human Ecology. Sophie has been painstakingly recreating the fabrics of the Renaissance, and the results of her work are on display in the exhibit Remaking the Renaissance, at the Lynn Mecklenburg Textile Gallery on the UW campus. Sophie Pittman joins us now in the studio. Welcome to the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you. Good morning, Brian. So this seems like a very particular sort of passion, um, looking at the, these these kinds of fabrics. How on earth did this attract your attention? What inspired you to just try and actually make the things that we see in those paintings? I'm glad you asked. Um, I think it was actually looking at paintings that first attracted me to thinking about this period of history. I'd always been interested in clothing, um, but I looked at a painting of Queen Elizabeth one day as an undergraduate, and I realized I could not understand what she was wearing at all. I thought, <laughs> what on earth are all of those things? What are those fabrics? How does it how is it shaped like that? I didn't understand it. And uh, by this point, I'd been studying this period of history, but in a quite traditional way. I'd been reading texts, um, looking at documents, and I realized that I didn't have a sense at all about the visual or material experience of that period. Um, and so I started going to museums and finding out what survived from the period. And the answer is not very much. Mm. <laughs> um, and partly that's because textiles were so valued and loved that they were used and reused. Um, it's also because we're now talking about something that's 500 years old and is fragile and is probably damaged or lost in some way. And so remaking um, for me it was a way both to understand and honor the skills of people in the period, um, many of whom didn't leave behind written records, um, but they did leave objects that maybe we can we can study um, by looking and remaking. And it was also about filling a gap, sort of repairing that material loss. So in uh, Queen Elizabeth's day, mm -hmm. uh, who was making those collars for her? I mean, those, you know, incredibly elaborate, yeah. you know, uh, ornate, like hooded, they look like frilled lizards collars yes. almost. Who, who were the people who were actually making those? Uh, well, almost um, a majority of people in society were making things. Um, over 20% of people in London, for example, were officially employed in a textile-related trade. Um, and then... that. We're talking here about men, the documented ones, but the vast majority of women, too, would be making at home for their families. Children were involved. And so almost everybody in society, I think, would have had a hand, would have known how to make things, um, would have been used to repairing their textiles, caring for them. And then at a professional level, uh, we have a, a huge proportion of society being skilled, having gone through a seven-year apprenticeship and, um, you know, really spending 
all of their days making things. Uh, in terms of the linens, those big uh, starched ruffs and lace collars, that was a mainly female profession. Uh, laundresses were the ones who were responsible for, for doing that incredible starching work. And they're, they're in, in that sense, um, those, that profession was so honored that um, we know the names of, of Queen Elizabeth's laundresses because it was such a, an important part of creating that, that majestic identity that was so crucial for, for ruling. And so you're, you're starting to see the, the rise of, a, of an artisan class mm-hmm. in that That's coming right. out of, you know, sort of feudal sort of thing where you had peasants and royalty and nothing mm-hmm. else. Now you're starting to get that middle ground of people who are working for a living with specialized skills. And um, so tell us a little bit about uh, your work in recreating some of these fabrics. How do you find out? what kinds of thread, what kinds of material, and how did you go about recreating some of these things? So textiles was such a central part of daily life um, that information about them uh, abounds, but it is spread sort of thinly over a very wide range of sources. And so I really don't discriminate in terms of where I can get information. I try to gather it from wherever. So that might be uh, economic documents like wills and inventories where uh, people record what they own, um, particularly at, at death. So we get a great snapshot often of what's in people's houses and wardrobes. That's a great document, particularly for for this artisan class who weren't leaving behind lots of other kinds of record. Um, But I also turn to to images, to portraits and other kind of depictions of daily life. Um, And then I look at surviving objects. So while we don't have many uh, full garments from the period, there are many, many fragments of textiles. And you can learn a lot from close looking, uh, looking maybe under a microscope or even just with your eyes and if you're allowed to, touching with your fingertips. Um, but also I, I do engage and collaborate with uh, people who can do scientific testing. And that can give you more information about what dye stuffs were used, what threads. Um, so really, I'm trying to gather information from wherever I can find it. <laughs> And then are you physically recreating these these articles of clothing yourself by hand? Uh, in some cases, yes, I do it myself. Um, but often the best results, I think, are from collaboration. Um, partly that's because there is so mu- much work to be done and no one garment in that period either would have been made by one person. These are big workshop productions. Uh, there are just so many hours of labor that go into creating each thing by hand um, that you need a team. But also because I think working collaboratively means that uh, you can all bring different expertise to the fore. I, um, while I enjoy sewing and dyeing and weaving and spinning, um, I am nowhere near the level of skill that a professional weaver or dyer or spinner would have would have been um, in the 16th century, for example, when, like I, like I mentioned before, they would have had at least seven years of a full-time apprenticeship to even be allowed to do some of the, the higher-end things. And so many of the objects that um, you'll see on exhibition um, over at the Lynn Mecklenburg Textile Gallery right now um, I have made, but I've made them with other people. Uh, I worked with the School of Historic Dress in London. Um, I was also part of a large research project called um, Refashioning the Renaissance. Um, And in some cases, I've worked with students at UW's campus uh, or worked with other teams of researchers to together create these handmade um, 
historic reconstructions. When, when we think about all of the work and all of the labor that goes into producing these kinds of textile goods for clothing, I mean, it's hard for us in the modern age, I think, to understand that when we are shipping, literally shipping bales of T-shirts overseas because we've got too many of them and we don't know what to do with them. But, but at the time, these objects were so valuable that in some cases, noble people were getting murdered for their clothing. <laughs> That's right. Yes, textiles were among the most valuable possessions uh, that anybody owned across the, the social spectrum. Certainly at the high end, those, those nobles, their clothing was often literally woven with gold um, and covered with gems, precious stones, uh, and the silk or other fine textiles that are in it. They were worth immense amounts. So it was a very lively secondhand market. Um, these things held their value, unlike clothes do today. Um, and even further down the social spectrum, these are things that people had to spend money on because they were expensive. Um, the raw materials were expensive. The labor that went into them uh, was less expensive, comparatively speaking, than today. But still, um, these things were bought and were expected to last. People kept their clothes as long as they could. They cared for them. Uh, and then if, if they were no longer fit for them, maybe they'd fallen out of fashion or they were no longer uh, quite in the good enough state to wear, they'd been remade into something else. So textiles had a completely different um sort of uh, esteem in society at the time. And if you were on the lower end of the economic spectrum, you might have one pair of pants to last you the rest of your life. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, these things didn't... The People were really... Um, they did what they could. I think most people probably had two outfits, uh, at least, from, from what we can gather from inventories um, and wills and information like that. But yeah, they, they had their clothes for a very, very long time, and they repaired them multiple times. Um, and therein lies the challenge for somebody like me who wants to look at surviving clothes, because many of these things were just worn until they were worn out. Uh, and so even the very finest textiles that survive um, show lots and lots of signs of reuse and repair, which is a fascinating story about sustainability. But it also means that what we're looking at now is often quite far removed from what it looked like when it was originally made. So what do you have on exhibit at the uh, textile gallery? We have an awful lot on display in the gallery. We have over 60 historic textiles um, from the period that are from the Helen Louise Allen textile collection, which is also housed at the School of Human Ecology. And those are mostly small fragments, although we do have um, a couple of large ecclesiastical vestments, chasubles, on display. And then in addition to those pieces, we also have books of secrets from UW's special collections. Um, these are uh, early sort of almost scientific texts, but really books of recipes that tell us how different processes were done. Um, in the case of the exhibition, all of the, um, the recipes that I have on display are about imitation objects, imitation pearls, imitation leopard fur, and imitation amber. Um, we have uh, a number of reconstructions, ones that I have worked on, and uh, I've already mentioned the School of Historical Dress and the Refashioning the Renaissance Project. We also have reconstruction textiles that UW-Madison students have completed. Um, we have a number of knitted stockings that were made by a large team of citizen scientists who collaborated um, based on historic sources to remake uh, fantastically bright colored 
silk knitted stockings. Um, so it really, and, and we have prints as well from the Chazen Museum for that kind of visual source material. So it really is uh, uh, a gem of an exhibition because it brings together a large range of source material, uh, historic objects, and then contemporary reconstructions. So did you get your question answered when you were looking at that portrait of Queen Elizabeth? Did you figure out how to make what she was wearing? <laughs> I think I, I can understand now. Uh, I think a lot better what she's wearing. Could I make it? No, but I can probably tell you what it is. Although I will say that that uh, I mentioned the books of secrets and the imitation materials. I think the more I study this period, the more I realize how skilled craftspeople were at making things look like something that they were not. And so I've become a lot more skeptical about what I see in portraits because I know just how, how crafty they were with making a shell, for example, or a fish scale look like a pearl. Um, and so now when I, I look at those portraits, uh, I could almost undress the, uh, the the wearer, the sitter in my mind. I understand what's going on under the dress. Um, but I am I'm also in awe of the talents of the, the craftspeople. And I know that they can they can make something look like silk or gold, uh, even if it's not made of something that fine. All right. The uh, exhibit is called Remaking the Renaissance. It's on exhibit at the Lynn Mecklenburg Textile Gallery through May 19th. You can find the Textile Gallery at 1300 Linden Drive on the UW campus. And we've been speaking with textile researcher Sophie Pittman. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thanks for having me.